The sound guys are so angry with me because it was just on. My mom was the only one not clapping. Thanks, mom. <laughs> she were clapping. Oh, I couldn't see you. Yeah. I was like, hey, my mom's here. You guys are all, oh, she's not clapping. Okay, well, hi, everybody. It's great to see you. I'm so glad, so glad to be with you today. Has our worship helped you see Jesus today? Oh, I love it. And can we just thank the Lord for this time for us to get together? I know we've yearned for these moments just to worship our, our Savior. My hope today is that I'll help, I'll help us see Jesus a little more clearly too. I'd love for you to open your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 11 in a moment. I'd love for us to look at uh, this story that we dubbed the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But to do that, I, I would love to, um, really my aim is to unlearn you everything that you know about Palm Sunday. Like, I hope after today, like, you don't look at Palm Sunday the same. To, to help us with this, I'll, um, I just want to share a few stories from my own life. Uh, I grew up uh, in Chicagoland and went to college in Chicago and had a couple of those, like, moments where, you know, you got, got a chance, something came up, an event happened, and it was like a don't-miss moment, right? The Chicago White Sox won the World Series in 2005. I was living downtown. You guys are, like, true believers. I love you. The other service was Cubs fans. And, uh, uh, and I did what every college student does when your team wins the World Series series, I skipped class and I went to the parade. I didn't want to miss it, right? Like you don't, you don't miss it. When something historic happens, you don't, you don't miss it. Uh, you know, that was the same season of life when uh, Barack Obama was elected as the first African-American president. The entire city, red and blue, went out to Grant Park to see him give a historic address. Everybody was saying, don't miss it. And so that was a moment where Chris and I, we went out and we watched this thing happen. We didn't want to miss it. Um, I, but I really want to share this moment about a time where I had a don't miss moment that really doesn't stand up to the test of time. Uh, it was, I wanna tell you about the time when I woke up super early on a cold December day with my friend Brian to head down to a bookstore in Chicago. Do you remember Borders, RIP? Uh, we, we went to Borders to see an author who had just released a book. Not only was he an author, he was an accomplished sports hero, a, a, a one of the members of the Chicago Bulls himself, the one and only Dennis Rodman. <laughs> Do you remember this guy? I woke up stinking early in the morning, thought what I thought was going to be like fighting the crowds to go inch my way up to be able to see Dennis Rodman. My friend Brian and I, we went together and we got to Borders. And I remember this so completely. We, we, we got there and we looked around and there was nobody there. Like literally, this is the best kept secret in all of Chicago. Nobody showed up except for us. We stood right next to the door and then there was these two journalists there. We looked at them, they looked at us, they said, Rodman? We said, we hope so. And they said, okay, guys, us too. We must be in the right place. And a couple moments passed, we're looking at our watches, wondering, you know, how long it have to be until we get another cup of coffee. And finally, into the sky, we saw erupt this giant pillar of fire. And we all looked at each other, and we said, Rodman. And here he came, processed by dozens of people who I can't tell you what they were dressed like. It was not PG. And, and they, were, they were shooting fire into the air and they were accompanying and pulling a coffin that was on stagecoach wheels down Michigan Avenue. And right up to the door, right in front of us, this thing processed, people shooting fire into the air, this coffin coming. It got right to the steps, out popped from the coffin, Dennis Rodman. He got out, looking around, not worrying at all about the fact that he just popped out of a coffin. He walked right past me and my friend, went into Borders, and that was that. My friend and I, we looked at each other, we said, what do you think we expected? That was Rodman. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Man, that sounds a lot like Jesus. 
for you at home. That was sarcasm in case you didn't catch it. You might be actually asking, like, what does this have to do with Jesus? And here's a slick preaching move. You ready for it? Ready to watch? Both Robin and Jesus know how to make an entrance. We, we were there that cold December day to see a show. Not sure of what to expect, but to see someone who was going to arrive and, and do something crazy. And, and this is really, if you get to the heart of Palm Sunday, this is really what Palm Sunday was all about. There was this show that was going on and people gathering together to, to see this, 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 I don't know, who, who they were expecting to see, this, this Messiah. In the story of, of Palm Sunday... It leaves an indelible impression, this, this moment leaves an indelible impression on the lives of those who were actually there. Matthew, Mark, and John all were present in this moment, and they would later be their own journalists of sorts and write their own accounts of what happened on this day. Luke, the historian, would also take bits and pieces of eyewitness reports and put this into his memoir, his gospel account of what Jesus did and how he lived his life. And here's what I, I want to remind us. For those of us who've grown up in the church or know this story or Easter after Easter, we come back to this day. We come to Palm Sunday and you might have this moment of like, ooh, it's Palm Sunday. I wonder if I'm going to get a palm branch in church today. I wonder if the kids are going to run through and saying Hosanna and then go back. And it's always so cute when they do that. I wonder what we're going to do for Palm Sunday. But I'm here to tell you that Palm Sunday is kind of weird. Like, you have to be a really churchy person to think Palm Sunday was normal. And in fact, if you're not a church person and you're thinking about Jesus riding a donkey that he stole from someone up to two, two miles into Jerusalem when he could have easily walked, and people laying their coats on the ground and waving palm branches, saying he's the king of the world, I want you to know that I'm there with you. It's one of the craziest things in the world. And I want us to recover the mystery or the bizarre nature of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on this day. I hope that today as we walk through a couple of the gospel accounts that I can help you see with new eyes maybe what Palm Sunday is supposed to do for our hearts. So with that as an intro, I want to jump into the text. You've got Mark chapter 11 in front of you. I want to take it right there from verse 1. Look with me. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives. Let me just pause right there, just give you a little, uh, situate this in our times. Jesus has been walking all across the, the, the Galilean area on his way for 90 days, zigzagging across town on his way to Jerusalem. And he's at Bethany where he um, has just done a miraculous sign. We'll talk about that in a second. But, but he's, he's two miles from Jerusalem. I did a little Google mapping this week because I'm really good like that. And I realized from this moment right here, two miles is a little bit shy of South Lake Methodist Hospital on Broadway. Y'all know where that is? If I say Chick-fil-A, you know where that is? All right, Chick-fil-A is like three miles. South Lake's like 2.2 miles. Imagine, you know, us living in a land that's not so, you know, Midwesternly awful flat and had hills and, 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 you know, towards 30 was a great mountain. If this was Bethany where Jesus was, you could just literally look over here and you would see South Lake Methodist Hospital. You would see it. And, and from where Jesus was, he could see the temple. I mean, it was in his eyesight. He kind of saw like, that's where I'm going. So this is what he's doing. He's drawing near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, check this out, go into the village in front of you. So it's like not even that far. And immediately as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. It's a brand new car. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, 
the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. I'm struck by the specificity of what Jesus commands his disciples that day to, to, with such precision to say, go this way, do this thing, find this. When the people ask you, say this, and then you'll be fine. Let's see what happens. Because if, if it was me, I would say, I don't know, Peter, maybe you can go jack the colt for Jesus. Here, here's what happens. They went. They found the colt. It was tied at a door outside the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, hey, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said. And they let him go. All throughout this gospel account, we see the foreknowledge of Jesus on tremendous display. How did he know this thing? We could surmise theological answers, but no gospel writer actually bothers to give us an answer for how he knew. Perhaps uh, this was a cult of someone who had previously run into Jesus before. Uh, maybe they exchanged uh, addresses. I don't know. Um, Jesus possibly, uh, his fame had gone around the, the region so well that he knew if anybody heard that Jesus needed this, that they would gladly say, oh, please, Take not only my cult, but, you know, everything else I have too. For whatever it's worth, they get the cult and they bring it back to Jesus and they reconvene. And notice what happens next in verse, uh, verse 7. They brought the cult to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. Others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. This is the event that we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. Preachers over past generations have tagged this text. Here is your king or behold the king. And certainly we could say that today. But, but there's something different about this text that I want us to see today. If, you, if you're not a church person, you might be asking the question, what honestly is the big deal? Like it seems like everybody was there at a don't miss moment, but if you don't know what's going on, you might feel like you've missed it. Like what is this all, all about? And, and what's the deal with palm branches, like this is Florida? What's the deal with triumph, like he just won a battle? I want to maybe surmise this. What does this even have to do with the life and death of Jesus? Because this event itself on its face is hardly news or hardly good news. I want to teach us to learn to ask that question together. What does this have to do with the life and the death of Jesus? That's just a really good question to ask about pretty much anything in life. What does this have to do with the life and the death of Jesus. Because when we frame Palm Sunday through the lens of the life and the death of Jesus, we actually get a glimpse of what was happening here in bigger terms and in, in more specific ways that it could actually change the way we perceive this. No, actually, I think, I think that when we think about this question and how Palm Sunday unfolds, we have to think about the fact that Palm Sunday is not a day in itself which is an end, but it is the beginning of the end. It must be understood for us as Christians, not that today is a day where the world receives her king, 
But as a day where the world thought they were receiving their king, but they missed it. Here's what I mean. How do you go from these people who are here in this moment singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord here on Sunday, and then have them at the same time on Friday reversing their blessings into curses? I wonder for us, what if Palm Sunday wasn't so much about a day for us to recreate, but a day for us to reflect? See, the haunting thing about Palm Sunday for me is that I might like to think that I would have been one of those people waving the leafy branches out there, proclaiming Jesus as my king, but I would have missed it too. And I think if we can put ourselves back in the situation of that day, you would have missed it too as well. And this is what I want to do, just for the remainder of the time that we have left, is just to put ourselves in the position of the characters in the crowd that day. To take a perspective of those who are actually waving and screaming and cheering, you know, long live the king as it were. What does it look like for us to understand the expectations of the crowd that day when Jesus arose and when Jesus rode into the to the city. What were they expecting? What type of Messiah did they think they were getting? What we're going to see is there are four different types of Messiah that the people expected, but those expectations actually caused them to miss Jesus completely. And how sad it would be for us if we thought we knew Jesus, but we actually misunderstood Jesus. I think Palm Sunday serves for us a cautionary tale for what it's like when we let our expectations for who Jesus is define who we think he is. So, without further ado, I want to turn to John chapter 12 in your Bibles. John chapter 12. Flip, flip over in that to verse 16. In John chapter 12, we're going to want to look at the first set of people who had expectations in the crowd that day. And here's what it says. John chapter 12, verse 16. John has just written a very short account. Jesus rode in on a donkey. People screamed, Hosanna. He tells us, like, this fulfilled a prophecy. And then look at what he says as he re- recounts this moment. He says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but... And then say this part together with me, church. When Jesus was All right, so that's really important for us. They didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and he had been done to him. Notice this. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, that was the miracle he last performed in Bethany, which he had just left. They continued to bear witness about this event. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Palm Sunday comes to us on the heels of one of Jesus's most miraculous signs, the raising of one of his friends from the dead in the presence of witnesses. Many saw it. Many were amazed by it. And and here Jesus is leaving town and the people say, oh, Jesus, don't leave. We're going to come with you. And they start lining up the streets and and they start singing his praises. And here's what I believe happened in this day. And here's what I want us to see is because so often we can see the signs of God and imagine that he's something that he's not. Here's the mistake they made. They were looking for a genie. These people were looking, you remember, you remember Aladdin, right? Like that, that little lamp and you, right? Okay, some of you are a little older. It was like this, right? You remember genies? They were looking for someone, a wish granter. 
Someone to like bring my preferred life into existence. This is doubtless what the people were crying when they saw Jesus. Hosanna, save! Like, like wholeheartedly, they're like, yes, Jesus, save! Maybe some in the crowd were those who needed salvation from their own physical ailments. Maybe there were people in the crowd who had just themselves lost a loved one. And here was this miracle worker who just did something that no one else has done. And they were screaming and shouting about it just the same way you and I would shout about it as if we found someone who could finally make our life what we wanted it to be. All of us, you know, none of us here thinks that that game that we play, you know, what would your three wishes be if you had a genie? And everybody says more wishes. Not that game. You know, we've all played that, but, but none of us really thinks that would ever happen, right? So for some of us, we might think, I'm not looking for Jesus to be my genie. I know better than that. That doesn't exist. But sometimes we functionally come to God as if all that he had for us was just a prosperous and healthy life ahead of us. Here's how, here's how it plays out in my family. Um, I've got a daughter who is obsessed with cats, and I'm allergic. And every night, not every night, but a lot of nights, she will pray, Jesus, help my daddy not be allergic to cats. Did I mention I'm emotionally allergic to them? <laughs> She's learning who, who God is and who Christ is and the type of savior that he is, but Somewhere in her really, you know, basic mind at this point of her understanding, there's this idea that I wish it and then God does it. All of us know that God is not subject to us being master over him. But Jesus riding on the donkey this day was the master over us. So for us to think that God is just someone who's going to be the pathway for us to get the easy and happy and blessed life... There are some blessings to following Jesus, but he doesn't guarantee it the way a genie would. They were looking for a genie. Well, that was those who were coming out of Bethany who had seen him do this wonderful sign. But what about those who had been spending three years with him? Those who were in the crowd that day, those who actually wrote the book, right? Matthew, Mark, John, Bartholomew, Peter, all of these guys who had spent their time with Jesus. What about his disciples? What about his disciples? Well, John tells us that they didn't understand what Jesus was or what he was doing until after he died and rose again. And so the significance of even this moment was lost on those who had been called to be his followers, to learn from him as a rabbi would teach uh, his pupils. The disciples this day were saying, hallelujah, hosanna, not because they were looking for a genie, but because they had thought they found a guru. They had to come to Jesus the way that someone would come to someone who has sage wisdom or all the knowledge or the, the, the way that they should go. In, in this time in Israel, people were awaiting the teachings of God, trying to understand, what does God want from me? And so they would go from rabbi to rabbi to rabbi. And, and rabbis would say, well, you know, they would teach their teachings. They would say, well, you have heard it said, but I tell you this. And that's a very foundational formula that the rabbis would use to teach. They would instruct their people in the way that God wanted them to go as that rabbi understood it. And all throughout Jesus' life and his ministry, he's amazing people with his unbelievable knowledge of who God is, that he's drawing so many people together into his, his, his sermons, into his life, teaching them, helping them be their disciples. But how many people know this? You can know exactly what somebody taught without even knowing 
their heart. You can, at work, spend all of your time being mentored by a coach, someone who's very profitable, very successful, very, you know, educated, and, and, and learn everything you can from them, but not know anything about them, can't you? I mean, it's possible to have radio personalities that you listen to that instruct you on in the ways that you should think or podcasts that you like that instruct you on in the ways that you could think. These are the modern-day gurus that we go to, aren't we? They're all controlled by our algorithm that help us figure out who we want to listen to, the way that we want to live our lives. And, you know, the disciples then are not much different than who we are today. The disciples, if they didn't like the teaching, they would leave the rabbi. They'd go find somebody else who put it in a way that they kind of preferred. And here's my challenge for us today on Palm Sunday is, have you fallen in love with the teachings of Jesus, but not the heart of Jesus? Kristen had this opportunity this past week to uh, connect with some students at a Bible college that's one of our alma maters. And um, she got to answer the question for them, what is life like after Bible school? I kind of wish I had someone who would have walked me through that. She got to be a little bit of a, a next down the road person for so many people. And one of the things she encouraged these students with was to say this, in your study of God's word, don't let your study replace your relationship. That's such a good truth. Because I remember myself in Bible school, I was so zealous for God's word. I really wanted to know like what's right, what's wrong, who's getting it right, who's getting it wrong. And I was obsessed with trying to figure out what's the right thing for me to understand that it became a little bit of an obsession for me. And in the midst of that, I remember thinking, I know this book so much, but I don't think I know the heart of the one who wrote this book. Have you ever been there? You've been deep into God's word and so much that it became a replacement for your actual soul level love for him. This is what happens when Jesus becomes to us just a good teacher. And in the church, this is something that we gotta be aware of. We can denigrate who Jesus actually is and then miss him as he walks by because we're just looking at his teachings, wanting him to be our guru. Some in that crowd were not looking for a genie. Some weren't looking for a guru. Others in that crowd were looking that day for what's called the consolation of Israel. They were looking for someone to govern. I wanna not spend a lot of time on this because it's a little bit more of a, a history lesson. But, but in that time, Israel was ruled by the Romans. Not like we're ruled by the book of Romans here at Bethel. <laughs> they were actually under the authority of Rome. They couldn't, get out from it. Rome had come with all of its power, all of its might, and, and had set up governors and proconsuls to keep the peace. The Pax Romana was a false peace that was ruled by oppression. The people in Israel were pining for the day when God would again put to right the things that he had promised them way back to their forefather Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that he would be their God and he would rule them. All throughout their history, the leaders that God raised up were just earthly symbols of their heavenly king. God was to be their God. God was to be their ruler. God was to give them the ways that they should organize their nation. And all throughout their story, men and women, if you look at the judges, ruled over Israel. And, and they failed to perfectly encapsulate the love and the rulership of God. And over time, it became worse and worse and worse and farther and farther and farther away from God so that God put them into exile. God gave them over to the nations. And one of these things that happened was that the Romans came in and actually ruled over Jerusalem. Do you remember Simeon from Christmas? 
the old man who would hang out at the temple waiting for the Messiah. He saw the little boy, Jesus. He picked him up, you know, kind of that weird kidnapping moment where he picked him up and he held him and, and then he, he prophesied this saying, my eyes have seen your salvation prepared in the presence of all people, a light for the Gentiles, glory for your name. And then he says this, he says, I've been waiting for the consolation of Israel, that moment when God would come back and send his anointed one to rule over all and to put to right that which has been broken. If we're thinking about what people expected this day, this was the framework that their mind was in. How do we get out from underneath Rome? American history buffs remember that moment of the American Revolution when redcoats were all over our shores and our one obsession was how do we free ourselves from oppressive taxation? My sister's a Brit now and I don't like her because of this. I'm sorry, that was a sarcastic joke. I love you. Um, it's human nature to want freedom. We want freedom, don't we? You can say yes to that, that's okay. We want freedom. We wanna be able to live with God's rules and reign in our lives. But the problem was, these people, as they looked and they cried out, Hosanna, what they were expecting was a political leader who was going to go up that hill into that city and take over power and wrest it from the Romans and free them from the tyranny of Caesar. And we here in 2021 might be some of the most privileged generations to look back into history and look back upon the cultural dynamics of what happens when people of faith put their faith in politics. We of all people might be those who might shout back to them, don't do it, <laughs> you know, save yourself from it. It gets crazy and you'll miss Jesus. Part of how this played itself out, those who were looking for a governor, those who would, you know, have the, the government would being upon his shoulders, the rule of his kingdom would have no end. Those who were looking forward to this moment when Jesus would rule and reign or the Messiah would rule and reign, they were crying out for this moment. Some of them were not just looking for a, a governor, but if they were honest, this is the fourth perspective that I want to pull out today that we, can, we have to see if we're going to understand Palm Sunday, is this, they were looking not for a genie, not for a guru, not for a governor, but they were looking for a gladiator. They were looking for a guy like Russell Crowe. They were looking for someone to fight their fights. They were looking for someone who wasn't just gonna have a philosophical rule and reign, but was actually gonna take a weapon and bash their way into ownership and rulership. You say, well, that doesn't seem right. I, wanna, I want you to look back at, at John. Again, after John shares with uh, us what happened in the people, he, he said this in verse 19 of chapter 12. Right after he talks about the people coming out because they had seen this sign, here's what he says. Look at this ominous look into a group of religious people, the Pharisees, who are trying to leverage their power to win cultural control. Look, look what happens. He says this. So the Pharisees said to one another, Jesus gets all the applause and hidden in the background that day are this group of people who are huddling up. They say this. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. What did they expect? The Pharisees expected someone who would understand the will of God and the word of God and the obedience of God so well that they could renew the pure religion of Jerusalem so that God would be their God once again. And in their mind, this Jesus was dissuading the people from that. He was abusing the Sabbath. He was abusing the law. He was leading people, they thought, away from God. And so he was a problem. 
He wasn't fighting their religious fights the way they wanted to fight their religious fights. Closely associated with the Pharisees in this day was was the smaller sect of political activists. They were called the Zealots. Walking within feet of Jesus this day would have been Simon, the Zealot. Sometimes we translate that thinking like, oh, he was just so zealous for God. But actually, if you look at the history, the zealots were an organized group of people who were actually trying to overthrow Rome on their own sort of way. They would, they would in small bands, pick up clubs and swords and try and fight different sections of the army to take over control of the city so that they could block by block by block take it back for Israel. Simon, no doubt, was one of these people who had tried to harass the Romans. Um, If that seems like conjecture to you though, uh, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 15 that there was a zealot that we know about who was in prison for having tried to initiate an insurrection against Rome. His name was Barabbas. Barabbas was a Jewish person who was so trying to get the rule and reign of God back in that day that he had actually killed Romans. And so they had imprisoned him. What was their expectation? Their expectation was that this cult symbolized a king and that king was going to order the military to take up arms to overthrow the government to put back to right the kingdom of God. I'm not saying that, you know, you've got clubs at home that you're going to go, you know, beat down the doors of people who don't believe in God with. But I do wonder if there's ways in which our lives, we kind of want Jesus to fight our cultural battles for us, battles that actually he has no interest in waging. I wonder if in our own understanding of the Messiah and what he's all about, we too have fallen victim to this idea that here's the king, he's going to fight all of our battles and make our life great again. I wonder if on Palm Sunday, maybe some of us would have actually been the one saying, here we go. The fight's about to happen. Let's bring it on. For what it's worth, I think it's easy to say nobody in the crowd that Sunday really truly knew what Jesus was going to do the next Sunday. They may have had their expectations. They may have had their desires, their hopes, and their dreams. Some wanted his stuff. Some wanted his teaching. Some wanted his rulership. Some wanted his fight. But you and I have to do what John tells us to do in John chapter 12, verse 16. He gives us the clue on how to understand Palm Sunday. Did you see it? I made you say it. He he tells us the disciples only understood these things when they remembered the fact after his death and his resurrection. Which means for you and I today, the only way for us to understand what type of a Messiah we have in Jesus who's humble and riding on that donkey up that hill is to remember that he was going to do the thing that genies don't do and gurus don't do and governors don't do and gladiators don't do. He was going to die. And this is why Palm Sunday for me is a cautionary tale. Because nobody expected him to die. We have to ask ourselves in our picture of Jesus, does he just give us his good stuff or does he actually call us to a life of surrender? Does Jesus actually give us good teachings that'll help us avoid pain in our lives, but does he also teach us to take up our cross and follow him? 
Does Jesus rule and reign in this world? Absolutely. But what type of kingdom does he have? Is Jesus a warrior? You better believe it. He's coming back riding on a stallion, armored up, ready to win the war once and for all. But what realm does he fight in? To understand Palm Sunday, we've got to understand that Jesus actually came on a donkey, lowly, with the crowds screaming for him, cheering for him. But if you look in Luke's account of it, the next thing Luke records is that Jesus looked up the hill and he had tears in his eyes because Jerusalem didn't know who he was. but you and I can know who he is. I don't have time to preach part two of this message, but here's what it is. It unfolds on Monday for you to ask the question. What is Jesus doing when he cleanses the temple? What is Jesus saying to those who expected him to be a genie when he looks across the temple and sees a poor woman put in two mites into a box and says, surely she has given more than anyone else? It doesn't really sound like genie talk, does it? It sounds actually the opposite of what you'd expect. What does Jesus mean to those who are looking for for the government when he talks to Pilate and he says, my kingdom is not of this world? What does Jesus mean when in that garden in Gethsemane, Peter slices off the ear of one of the people coming to arrest him and Jesus says, no more of it, put your weapons down. For us, what Jesus does over the next couple of days has to show us the type of Messiah that he is. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to play this back in your mind now. Do you see Jesus on Palm Sunday riding up that hill accompanied by all these people declared the royal savior, the son of David, the king of Israel riding on the donkey. It was a donkey reserved just for him. He's processing to the royal city, the city of God, Jerusalem, the peace of God. And he is no gladiator. He is the prince of peace. He is not just a genie or a healer. He is the great physician himself. He is no guru who is riding along, but he is the word of God incarnate. He's no governor just of a realm or a province or a city. He is the king of kings. The problem in the crowd this day was that their picture of Jesus was just too small. And I hope for us, we might learn to get out of the trap of our own expectations to see that Jesus is a little bit bigger than maybe we ever imagined. You and I are prone to fight the same battles that they fought. You and I, if we're being honest, would have been crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then on Thursday crying, give us Barabbas, the one who will actually try and fight for us. You and I, we like to think of ourselves really, you know, heroically, but we wouldn't have expected this Jesus to die. And here on Friday, back here together, I hope you'll join us as we celebrate the fact that this Messiah came with a purpose. He came and lived to die, and he died to live. He did what nobody expected Monday through Friday and Friday through Sunday.
And because he does what nobody expected, we can expect what nobody in this world expects, that this wasn't just some man. This wasn't just some guy on a donkey. This very Jesus himself surely is God. We'll sing that anthem. The next time Jesus makes an entrance into this world, we'll sing together the same psalm they sang on Palm Sunday. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here is the kingdom of our father, David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We'll sing that psalm that, that, that Paul wrote to the Philippians when he said that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is 